wanted to start with a quote from the painter Henry Rousseau. And Henri Rousseau once commented that God made man in his own image, and man being a gentleman returned the favor. And so we're going to lean into that a little this morning and talk about us reinventing God in our own image and challenging ourselves to ask Jesus to define us rather than choosing to define Jesus. And we're going to start this morning by reading the first part of Psalm 37. And so if you've got a Bible in front of you, it's on page 391. If you're on your phone, it is still Psalm 37. So read with me. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. Dwell in the land, enjoy safe pasture, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger, turn from wrath, do not fret. It leads only to evil, for evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land." What I like about this psalm is that the author, David, clearly knows where he fits in the created universe. He understands that he is there to serve the Lord, that God is the one who acts in power, and he is the one who oversees this entire world that we are in. But this passage also includes a verse, verse 4, that you can take out of context and say, oh, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. So if I follow a checklist then God has to do what I say because I get the desires of my heart. That's what he's promised to do. Now, again, if you take that verse out of context, that's where you can end up. But the reality is when you hear all of this, we recognize that, no, all of this is in service of the Lord. And if we delight ourselves in the Lord, if we allow him to define who he is and who we are, then our hearts will change. And what will be in our hearts that he will fill is what he wants to fulfill and what we want him to fulfill. And we create this virtuous cycle of allowing God to define us and then him being able to bless through that definition what he wants us to do. But our challenge is that we don't necessarily like that. We want a God that we can kind of mold into our own image rather than allowing him to mold us into his image. Tim Keller has written that if your God never disagrees with you, you are likely worshiping an idealized version of yourself. I find that very convicting because I like worshiping an idealized version of myself. It seems like if God did things the way I thought that they would be done, I would have a lot more harmony in my understanding of God. And yet when I read scripture, I find things in scripture that I struggle with, that I look at and I think, gosh, how, how is this the God of the universe, because I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Now, what's interesting is over decades, there are things that I struggled with in scripture that I have come to grips with and realized, oh my gosh, there's so much more wisdom in scripture. There's so much more wisdom in God's action on this earth than I understood at the time. 
But there are other passages I still struggle with and I don't know what to do with. I, don't, I, I can read some of the Old Testament and see God basically encouraging some of the leaders of Israel to wipe out entire populations. And I'm like, boy, that, I really struggle with that. I don't, I don't know how that works. I also look at him offering grace and saying, he is willing that none would perish. And I read, he's willing that none would perish. And I'm like, well, why can't he say he's willing that few would perish? Because there's some clearly bad people that he can't really want to redeem. And yet God says, absolutely not. He is willing that none would perish. And so if we look at this and we find in scripture things that create friction with us, the easiest way for us to address that friction is to redefine God or to reinterpret God so it fits more easily in our lives. And we do that in three particular ways. The first way we do that is by dealing with God's identity and his character. The second way we do that is by looking at his behavior. And the third way we do that is by redefining the expectations he has of us. I'm going to get to dig into those a little bit. So I want to go back into Joshua 5. When Joshua is in the process of going into the promised land to conquer it, to fulfill what God has asked him to do. And he comes across the plains of Jericho and encounters a person with a drawn sword. He does not know who this person with the drawn sword is. And what does he say? He says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And it turns out the person with the drawn sword was an angel of the Lord. And he said, neither. I am the commander of the Lord's army. I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I'm on God's side. And I read a passage like that. I'm like, well, no, no. Joshua was doing what God said. In fact, four or five verses later, God is going to tell him how to conquer Jericho in a miracle, in something that God is ordaining for his people. And yet at the same time, God remains on God's side. The angel of the Lord is the commander of the army of the Lord. He's not on Joshua's side, and he's not on Jericho's side. He's on God's side. And so when we deal with things like that with identity, we, we struggle and say, okay, how, how does that work? Well, we, now let's project forward into the New Testament. As Jesus comes onto the scene, and we have a Jewish culture of the time awaiting eagerly a Messiah, a political revolutionary who would overthrow the Roman Empire and provide independence for the nation of Israel. This was a commonly accepted cultural expectation for what Messiah would be. Jesus did not particularly care what the cultural expectation of what Messiah would be. He decided to give them something greater than that. So was the Roman Empire overthrown? It absolutely was not. It persisted in one form or another for another thousand years. And what did, what did God overthrow? He overthrew a culture of sin and death that affects all of us. So instead of just liberating a nation, he liberated an entire population of the world for anyone who would follow him. And so when we look at those things like identity and we look at those things like character, it's easier for us to say, I want a God who is like this. I want a God who is just when I am dealing with evil in the world, when I am confronting sin and people who are not getting the just desserts for their bad behavior, I want a just God. When I am the person doing those bad things, I want a merciful God who understands my excuses and my explanations for why I did what I did. But I have to put in conflict the fact that I have a God who promises that he is both just and merciful at the same time. So if I want justice and I want mercy, great. I've got a God who does both. We struggle. How do we integrate those? Well, quite frankly, we don't do it very well, but God does. And so our perspective is if I can't be both just and merciful, then clearly God couldn't. Well, for goodness sake. 
This is the creator of the universe, billions and billions upon galaxies of billions of stars. The, the size of this universe is absolutely staggering. And physicists will tell you, based on everything we know, we have identified what makes up 5% of the universe. 27% is dark matter, 68% is dark energy. We have no idea what the heck it is, but yet we want to say, God, we know better than you. God begs to differ. And so when we look at a God who is just and merciful, we look at somebody who is both powerful and kind, we look at someone who is both great and good, one of the ways we attack who God is and we try and redefine God is say, I don't see how God could be good or be great. In fact, there was a, a popular book in 2007 by Christopher Hitchens called God is Not Great. And we have pundits constantly telling us that God's identity and character are inferior. And yet what's so fascinating and so difficult for us to understand in the culture in which we live is that the very ways we are evaluating God's character in many times come out of the, the, the Judeo-Christian history. In the Roman Empire around the time of Jesus, it was considered acceptable practice if you had a child that you did not want, whether for whatever reason, you could basically expose them to die in a public area. Now we would call that murder. At the time, it was considered socially acceptable practice. In fact, one of the ways Christians were identified in the first and second century is that they would find the people, find the babies who were left out, and they would take care of them. They would bring them into their family. They would save them. And people around were like, well, that's not a person who can help you in your life. Why would you take care of them? Because we have a new standard for what morality is. We have a new standard of right and wrong that is born out of the character of who Jesus is, the character of God as it was revealed in the Bible. And now, after decades and centuries and millennia of watching this play out, we have now tried to divorce those two things and say we're going to use the good things that God taught us to judge the God who taught them. To us. And so that's awkward. And we do that in a way by looking at God's behavior. And God's behavior can be done in a couple of ways. We have expectations that if God loves me, he would do this. If God loves me, he would stop this. And we talk a lot in this church about the difference in the word hope now from what it was when the scripture was written, that hope is a confident expectation that God will do what he says he will do. And God will do what he says we will do. But often we use our term of hope, which is we wish God would do these things, and then we expect him to do that. And then when he doesn't do it, it frustrates us, and it angers us. And I don't want to minimize this. A lot of us have been confronted with things in our lives that are evil or that are broken or that are wrong. And our expectation is God, we want a God who doesn't let these things happen. We want a God who, who solves these sorts of problems for us. And yet our challenge is that when we deal with something like that and we try and redefine God in such a way that would allow those bad things to happen, we do a really bad job. The book of, in the Bible that illustrates this best is the book of Job. In the book of Job, Job is a person who is so upright that when God is talking to Satan, he said, have you considered my servant Job? Basically, there's nobody better on the planet right now. And Satan says, we'll see about that. And he takes away all his possessions. He takes away his family. He does things so that Job is absolutely the victim of abhorrent, of abhorrent evil. Some of it's natural disaster. Some of it we now know turns out to have been supernatural this whole time. 
But Job is dealing with all of this. And we know that for 35 more chapters, not only does he not sin in confronting the Lord, but he has three friends, and I use that in inverted commas, who basically say, this is your fault. And then he has another friend, a fourth friend, who comes in and challenges Job again. And then God comes and speaks to Job. And what's interesting about all of this is that he doesn't deny Job's suffering. He doesn't deny the fact that evil has occurred. But he also leans, on the fact, leans in on the fact that Job, in a way, doesn't know what he's talking about. And at the start of chapter 38, he says, Who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Now, he's just said this is an upright person. This is a godly person. But now he's also saying, you're also an idiot, comparatively. Comparing yourself to God. You have no knowledge compared to what God has. Now, there's a story about a confrontation between Satan and God that involved Job being trial, undergoing trials and being challenged for an extended period of time. Do you know what we don't see at the end of the book of Job? We don't see God explain it all. That had to be tremendously frustrating for Job. But what we do see God do is challenge Job and say, here are, and I don't remember the exact number of questions, a few dozen questions. Can you answer any of these questions? Where were you at the foundations of the earth? Who hung the Pleiades? Who, were you, who was there with these particular animals? And da 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 And Job immediately realizes, oh, I am comparatively an idiot. There are things that I don't understand. There are ways of understanding how God is interacting with the world that I don't understand. And he falls on his face and confesses but he still never gets an answer, and that frustrates us. We live in a time that has elevated science, that has elevated definitive answers to questions, and we like them. And so when we don't get them, it creates, again, friction in us. It makes us frustrated. Because we want God to behave in a certain way, and when he behaves in a different way, we don't know why. Now, sometimes we have to trust that there is a reason. Sometimes we find out the reason, and sometimes we find out the reason much, much later. It could be a variety of those things. But when we're face-to-face with this challenge, when we're face-to-face with this difficulty, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't necessarily reassure us. So it can make us question who God is. So we have a choice there. We can lean in and allow God to define who we are through this and how can he be with us while we're going through this. Or we can say, God clearly doesn't love me. He clearly doesn't care. He clearly isn't who he says he is. So we have to hold that intention. And then the third thing I think we have to expect is what are God's expectations of us? Through all the cultures in time, we have seen moments in history where we look back and we say, these things in this culture were celebrated, they were common, and they were wrong. They were evil. I guarantee in 100 years, people are going to look back at our culture and say there are things in 20 first century America that are common, evil, and wrong. We might have our blinders on. We may not see what those are. But if we read scripture and we look at some things, I think we've got a couple hints on some areas of challenge to our culture right now. I think one of the things that has happened over time is we have created a much more polarized society. Much of this is tied to politics. But one of the clear teachings of Scripture, not just in one place, but in at least 20 to 22 books of Scripture, is that we are called to love our enemies. In Luke 6, love your enemies, do what's good to those who hate you. 
We live in a culture right now who doesn't like that idea very much. We want to take our enemies and punish them, or at the best, ignore them, because we don't like the fact that we need to truly love them and engage with them and so forth. And so in this time of political polarization, we've got a culture that says divide. We've got a God who says unite. Unity is a key component of God's church. And we have people on both sides of the political divide who love Jesus. We have people on both sides of this societal rift who could benefit from being loved by people who disagree with them. And so what is God's expectation for us? Love our enemies. Well, but that's hard in a culture where we're creating separation. What's another one? We need to de-emphasize money. Because one thing, in a politically polarized arena, you know how everybody can keep score? We can agree to keep score by counting dollars, in our case. Well, in Hebrews 13, we hear, keep your life free from the love of money, be satisfied with what you have. Do we have a culture that teaches us to be satisfied with what we have? Don't know the exact number. It's tens of billions of dollars are spent in advertising to try, us, to, try to teach us to not be content with what we have and to get us to spend our money and to seek other things. And so these are a couple of ways in which God has expectations of us that create friction for us. They're hard for us because we live in a culture that celebrates these things that God says are wrong. And so again, we can come back to scripture and say, you know what, I think you're misreading Hebrews when it says keep your life free from the love of money. Um, that's not what it means. Or, you know, love your enemies. No, well, not all your enemies, just some of your enemies, the good ones, right? And so we redefine God based on what we want him to be saying rather than who he says he is. Rather than, we, we redefine God on what we want to do on what, rather than what he encourages us to do. Well, why? Why do we do that? What is part of our zeitgeist? What is part of our culture that would encourage us to do that? I'm going to go quickly through four things. I think one is that we celebrate individuality. That's one of the, the great things in our culture is the, the, the celebration of the individual. But what ha that has led to over time is we've, we've come up with a culture that actually celebrates having no regrets, as if the worst thing you've ever done in your life, you don't regret. I find that really, really weird. I have done things that hurt people. I don't want those people to be hurt. How do I not regret the bad thing I've done? Well, I wouldn't be who I was today if I hadn't done that well, I'd probably be a better version of myself if I hadn't done that. I would rather be that person, not the person that I am, who injured relationships and harmed other people. I think a second reason is because our life is more complicated. It makes it easier for us to try and oversimplify things. I walked through the grocery store yesterday. The staggering number of products that I have to choose from, it's like at some point I have a favorite cereal. Is it because I have tried all 318 cereals on the cereal aisle? It is not. Have I tried all 1,700 flavors of chips? No, I just know that I like the salt and vinegar chips from Brand X, right? We have a complicated world that we are trying to simplify. And sometimes we like to use sound bites and simple ways of defining things that aren't simple. A lot of life is nuanced. I read somewhere that if you don't understand on an issue why anyone would disagree with you, you don't understand the issue. Here's the problem. There are so many issues. There are a lot of issues I don't understand that I need to have an opinion on 
But some of those opinions I probably should hold loosely because if I don't understand why anyone would disagree with me, I clearly don't understand the real problem there. And so we, because of that complexity, we find ourselves trying to oversimplify things. I think the third area is the voices of dissent. We now live in a world that, let's say social media, we can say in a variety of different ways, we can hear people who disagree with us 24 hours a day if that's what we're interested in doing. We can hear people who tell us we're wrong all the time. Flip side of that, fourth reason is voices of assent or voices of agreement. Similarly, if I don't wanna ever hear anybody disagree with me, I have algorithms on social media that make sure that I don't ever hear anybody that would tell me I'm wrong. And so I've got voices of assent, I've got voices of dissent, I've got individuality, I've got life's complexity. Oh my gosh, this is overwhelming. How is it then that we allow God to define us that rather than trying to redefine God? The answer to that question is probably not gonna be new to many of you who are in church, but hopefully there's something here in the nuance around this that will get you thinking and that will challenge some of your suppositions. Because the three things I'm gonna tell you to do are to pray, to read your Bible, and to be in community. It's like, yawn, okay, let me go to sleep. I've heard this before. I've tried this before, didn't necessarily solve the problem. But I wanted to lean into these a little bit and talk a little bit about prayer. And I want to tell you, you hear from this pulpit a lot that when the elders get together, we spend the first half of the time we are together praying. And I heard this for decades. And then I became an elder and went to my first elders meeting, and we prayed for 65 minutes. There are many of you who pray for extended periods of time like that regularly. To my shame, I was not one of them. And about 40 minutes into the prayer, I'm like, dear Lord, we are talking here. When will this end? And it went on for another 25 minutes. And now, having done this for years, it is a wonderfully peaceful, it is a wonderfully powerful, it is a wonderfully bonding experience to pray with people over an extended period of time. But I have another confession to make because I took that and I thought, you know what I want to do is I want to pray. And one of the things I benefited from in that elder prayer is that I spend a lot of time not talking because there are six or seven of us in the room. There are other people praying. There are pauses. There are silences. And I feel like God is using those times as much as he's using the times of me talking. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go home and I'm going to spend a half an hour with my eyes closed. The only thing I'm going to do is pray the scripture verses that I have memorized and be silent and wait for the Lord to speak, wait for the Lord to convict me, wait for whatever. So I closed my eyes and I went through some of my most encouraging verses of scripture, some of the, the scripture that I wanted, and then I just shut up and tried to let God speak. What immediately happened? Well, my mind wandered, my to-do list got longer, all of those sorts of things. But as I leaned in a little bit and began speaking God's words of scripture back to him, the first thing I felt was peace. The second thing I felt was um, nuance, learning something about those scripture verses. Did I ever hear the spoken word of the Lord? No. Did I feel like the Lord's presence was absolutely there? Yes. So much so that I extended that period of time. And I was confident I'd spent, I don't know, hour, hour and a half in prayer until I looked up and realized I'd been praying for eight minutes. (laughs) My encouragement for you guys when you pray is to use that old, advantage, that old adage that we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, to listen twice as much as we talk. If God is truly as wise as I've said that he is, 
Perhaps we should listen to him more than expect him to listen from us. But that can be hard to do. Sometimes you pray and you're like, is that the word of God? Is that the word of Todd? I don't know. You could lean into it. You can continue to pray. From that very same elders meeting that we were in, that first 65-minute prayer time, there are prayers we prayed that were answered with a yes. There were those that were answered with a no. And there were those that weren't answered until three years later last week when we, prayed off, when we paid off this building. God reacts to our prayers in different ways. He convicts us in different ways. The second thing I want to talk about a little bit is Scripture. One of the things, again, you've heard from up here, Jeff has encouraged you to get into a Bible reading plan. And let me just say, if you have not started one, January 1st of 2024 is the ideal day to start a reading plan. If you are 30 days behind, tomorrow you will be zero days behind. And you can start from scratch. But this is more than just reading the Bible consecutively or getting into the discipline of doing that, it's reading the Bible in chunks and not skipping parts of it. One of the reasons I appreciate Jeff's teaching is that Jeff teaches through a book of the Bible. If he gets to something he doesn't understand, he will say that, but there are no awkward things. It's like, well, this doesn't really fit who our church is. I'm not going to preach it. We don't do that. We preach the whole Bible. We preach, we preach all of scripture because we believe it's all God-breathed and useful. Even if we don't understand why it's useful or how it's useful, in any, in any particular time, by exposing yourself to all of Scripture, you begin to see themes. You begin to see components that are woven throughout Scripture, and you're like, oh, this thing that happened in John is like that thing that happened in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. Except you may not even remember it, because if you're doing the Bible reading plan audibly, audibly, you might just listen to it. You might not know exactly what you're listening to, but I remember a month ago I heard that in Isaiah, and I see that in the New Testament. And so let me also encourage you to try something else. We watch movies. Movies are now usually beyond two hours. Have you ever spent two hours to read through an entire gospel? You think, well, that's a lot of time. Well, yeah, so is Iron Man. But we watch Iron Man, but we may not read John. Not every night. But you read the entire life of Jesus in one sitting, sitting the power of his teaching is amplified. The level of his sacrifice becomes so much more real. The insanity he had to deal with while living his ministry becomes a lot clearer. You're like, gosh, the disciples were almost no help at all. Right, they weren't. But when we do it in stories or we read one parable and we're gleaning one insight, we're going deep and narrow. Sometimes it's helpful to go broad and a little more shallow because now all of a sudden we can see, oh, I see the arc of this. I see, I think he's done five parables about this same topic. Perhaps I should pay more attention to money. Yes, perhaps you should. Those are the sorts of things that you find with extended exposure to scripture. And the third thing I want to lean into a little bit is community. Because a lot of times when you hear a sermon, the best thing you're going to get out of a sermon is, oh, that's something I need to think about. And if you're like most of us, we walk out of the room and we don't think about it again. Even the person giving the speech doesn't think about it again. But if there's something to think about, I would encourage you to think about it and talk about it. Whether that's talking about it within a family, whether that's talking about it in a community group, whether it's talking about it with the people next to you, all those gives you, give you opportunities to deal with subjects in a slightly deeper level. Again, we're trying to go to the next level of understanding who God is. And some of that gets deeply personal. I've heard Jeff use the illustration many, many times that he has given a speech 
given a, given a sermon, and somebody had come up to him weeks later and said, man, when you taught about this, it totally changed my life. And Jeff says, glory be to the Lord, walks away, says, I never said a word like that, ever. But that's what iron sharpening iron looks like, is when you talk to somebody, particularly somebody who doesn't always agree with you and doesn't always disagree with you, but somebody who you can wrestle with these issues with, because you gain a perspective that they have because they've lived a life different from what you have. And you, you know, the, the same goes in reverse. And that's why a community church is so valuable. Because scripture isn't, sorry, Jeff, magically inferred and interpreted by Jeff, and we all listen and nod and say, yes, thank you, Jeff. That's God's job. We need to lead in, lean into that and find out who is it that God says that he is, what characteristics of him do we see in our culture? What characteristics of him do we see contradicting our culture? Where do we lean into that and say, okay, to be different, to be a Jesus follower, these are things I need to do more of, these are things I need to do less of. How do I lean into that and let the Lord define me? And how do I look at myself honestly in the mirror and say, you know what, you're fooling yourself. You want God to be like this, but he's already told you he's like that. And we look at that and we think, Lord, help us transform ourselves to be countercultural in this way, that we don't allow ourselves to define Jesus. We allow Jesus to define us. So I'd like to close us in prayer as, as we kind of lean into this idea again. Dear Lord, thank you for Scripture. Thank you for the fact that we have a book that we can refer to to learn what you have to teach us. Thank you, too, for the Holy Spirit, who you have promised to, to work with us as a comforter, who can come alongside us and speak truth into our hearts. Thank you for the community. Thank you for your church with a capital C throughout all time and space of millions and millions of men and women seeking to follow you. Help us not try and redefine who you are in big ways, in small ways, in any ways. You know who we are. You were the one who created us. As the psalmist said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by you. And you know what is best for us. We pray that we would, again, lean into that and allow you um, to do that for us. In Christ's name we pray.